Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Alex Vorwald, a first-year Johnson MBA and producer on the Present Value team. Today, I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Ahuja. In the episode, Professor Ahuja reviews the start of his career, his mentors, and his decades of research into strategy and innovation, including the topics of generative and primary probability and technological acquisitions. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Jonathan Tin. And today, I'm excited to welcome Gautam Ahuja, the Eleanor and George Lando Professor of Management at Johnson. Professor Ahuja is an award-winning researcher in the fields of competitive analysis, technology and innovation, globalization, and the impacts of mergers, acquisitions, and alliances on these topics. Professor Ahuja's papers are regularly published in top journals, and they have been cited over 20,000 times. He currently serves as the Editor-in-Chief of Organization Science, one of the premier journals in his field. At Johnson, he teaches the popular course, Cases in Strategic Management, and he has been selected as the best professor by student vote 17 times across MBA, EMBA, and PhD programs. And in 2011, he was ranked the second most popular professor in the United States of America by Bloomberg Business Week. Professor Ahuja, thank you for joining us on Present Value. My pleasure and honor. So I thought we would start with your work on innovation in 2013. You examined the ways a firm can capture value from an innovation, which you define as appropriability. Could you explain to our listeners what is appropriability and walk us through your findings? Sure. So appropriability is the idea that when you invent something as a company or as an individual, you're hopeful that that invention will create some value for the world and that you will be able to get some significant part of that value. So appropriability quite strictly refers to the proportion of value from an invention that you are able to capture as opposed to other beneficiaries from that invention. So for instance, one could argue that IBM's you know, launch of the personal computer or Apple's launch of the original personal computer created a lot of value for customers. Clearly, the world is different because of our ability to use personal computers. However, it's not clear that Apple or IBM, for that matter, really captured very much of the value from that because Apple is not a very dominant player in the personal computing world, and IBM doesn't even exist in the personal computing world anymore. So that's an illustration of where, in the long run, the appropriability for the original inventors or pioneers was not very high. So um, this particular uh, construct is, can itself, I mean, that's, that's the basic construct. And in this paper, we make a distinction between two forms of appropriability and argue that actually firms could be benefited significantly if they paid attention to both forms rather than just one. The two forms, uh, we make a distinction between what we call primary appropriability and generative appropriability. After I describe these, I'll also go back and present some real-life illustrations to see how this concept could be useful. But first, I'll lay out the conceptual structure here. When you invent anything, you actually simultaneously invent two things. And this understanding goes back to Nobel Prize winner Kenneth Arrow and possibly earlier, that your invention is, first of all, a solution to some existing problem of the world and is therefore an artifact or an object that addresses or solves this problem. But there is also a second dimension to the value created by an invention, which is that every invention is also an addition to the universe of ideas. And most inventions are recombinations of existing ideas. So when you invent something, you have simultaneously invented a problem-solving artifact of some kind, like a toaster to, to make toast, but you also created a concept of heating some, you know, in this case it was bread, but of heating something through a particular process and then using that heat to prepare something, right? It could be a variety of other things. I'll, I'll come back with uh, more specific illustrations in a, in a few moments. So basically, the value created from an invention is one part is its problem-solving value, and the other part is what we call its fecundity or generative value, is that it serves as the source for other inventions. 
And therefore, the value stream that emerges from any invention is in fact in two forms. First is you take the invention and you make money off it through making a product or something like that. But the other is you take the concept that underlies the invention and then you come up with a sequence of products which also use the same underlying principle but are different ways of making money. So it's the number of inventions, new inventions that you create off your own invention is what we call generative appropriability. The profit that your original invention provides is your primary appropriability. So hopefully that establishes the distinction between primary and and generative appropriability. So to give you an illustration, many of us use electronic toothbrushes, right? And the principle underlying an electronic toothbrush is that vibrations at very high frequency, essentially when you apply the the brush to your teeth, uh, they're very high frequency vibrations and those vibrations shake loose any particles that might be otherwise stuck. And that's why electronic toothbrushes are supposed to be more effective than regular toothbrushes. But once you recognize that the principle there, which is that extremely high frequency vibrations can shake off microscopic pieces of embedded material, you can use the same principle to create a skin cleanser because then you have the same, you know, you take that idea of very high frequency but very gentle shaking and you embed it in a slightly different device and then you use that on your skin and it can be a way to get rid of imperfections in your skin and and thereby improve uh, that there. So notice that there's no guarantee that the person that invented the toothbrush would also recognize the potential to reuse the principle in cleaning the skin as well. And if they do so and they come up with the other device, then they are high on generative appropriability. But if they fail to do so, then that's a missed opportunity from a generative appropriability standpoint. So hopefully that clarifies the basic structure of that, of the concepts here. And... uh, The paper basically made the case that very often firms focus a lot on primary appropriability. So they focus a lot on trying to make money from the electronic toothbrush, but they don't necessarily put the same focus into saying, how can this principle that we've come up with also be applied to some other application which may have an even bigger impact or ability to solve some problems? Another application of generative appropriability that you've discussed is to explain Mark Zuckerberg's defense against the Winklevoss twins. Yes, actually, that's right. The interesting thing is that that's another uh, way that you can see the generative appropriability idea. Some of your uh, listeners might have seen the movie The Social Network, which is uh, a dramatization of you know of the launch of Facebook. So you have, and a big part of the movie is this uh, litigation between Mark Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins, with the Winklevoss twins basically saying that, you know, you suing Mark Zuckerberg for the theft of what they thought was their property. I'm not sure what the precise legal issues were, but uh, the idea was that they were, the Facebook was essentially drawing from what they had done. And it's actually interesting in one part of the movie, they, one of the Winklevoss brothers says uh, in that, you know, sort of dispute hearing that they're having, he demands some money and says, uh, you have to give the money to us or something like that because we are the inventors of Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg very, very sort of turns around and very sharply says, if you were the inventors of Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. So the idea here is, and this is exactly a, a wonderful illustration of generative appropriability, that the Harvard connection was the actual product that was developed by the Winklevoss brothers for which they hired Mark Zuckerberg. But the underlying concept of connecting people to people, because that Harvard connection was something that was shared amongst the Harvard undergraduate students, I think, for the most part. But the underlying notion that you could use such a software uh, sort of uh, platform to bring together people from all generations across the world, now that's a very powerful application of the same underlying concept, but it's not the same concept. It's not the same product, right? It's, it's the same concept, but not the same product. And so, in a sense, Mark Zuckerberg is saying, yeah, there was generative appropriability there, and I appropriated it in some respects, almost, uh, but that it was not the same product. Now, there is some value there but uh, that you brought in, but it was not the application that I, I created. Yeah. And in your paper, you split up the drivers of generative mm-hmm. appropriability into cumulative and preclusive activities. Okay. Could you walk us through the difference between these two types of activities? Yeah. See, generative appropriability is literally, so if you look at the definition, it says the proportion of the sequence of inventions, the follow-through inventions 
that came up after your invention that you happen to end up controlling or creating, right? So it's how much of the stream of inventions that came out of your original idea do you end up owning, right? And for that ratio to be high, two things must happen. One is you should be able to continue to build on that original idea of yours and come up with new inventions. And that's what I call the cumulative component. So you accumulate on your own thinking. But the other thing is that there is also a preclusive component there, which is that others may be inspired by your invention and they will be using their inventive energies as well. So if there is nothing to stop them from doing this, they're going to be moving ahead with that, you know, the next invention that builds on your invention. So companies, one can imagine, can be interested in both making sure that they are fulfilling sort of the cumulative component part, which is that they are actually building on their inventions. They're putting effort behind their own inventions to see what is the second and the third way that the idea can be used. But at the same time, companies would likely be interested to make sure that others are not using the same ideas as quickly and effectively, because otherwise some part of the energy that they have put into into creating something is going to be uh, some part of the benefit will arise to somebody else. Now, of course, this does create a sort of a social conflict because uh, on the one hand, the company would like to maximize the returns to its research and development. On the other hand, society might actually be served better if that original insight was built on by others. And that's part of the, uh, the issue here as well. And that's a complex issue and I've dwelt upon that in some settings, but uh, not very much in this paper, yeah. And so for preclusive activities, my mind almost immediately goes to lawsuits and patent litigation. But you argue that lawsuits may actually hinder or diminish generative appropriability. Why is that? See, the thing is that there is no guarantee that the next application of your idea is actually also best embodied by you. For instance, let me take the earlier illustration of the electronic toothbrush, the concept of shaking things loose that the electronic toothbrush you know, embodies in some sense. The issue there is that, let's imagine that the company that created it had a fair amount of expertise on understanding teeth. Now, they will come up with a product which, you know, it's a very powerful idea to basically just shake with high frequency so you'd get the particles of, you know, to sort of fall and, and get cleaned out. But the next application... Perhaps there's another application in skin care. There might be other applications because dirt in, in, you know, embedded in things is a common application, is a common problem. Now, if it's just one company is holds the rights to this too tightly, then perhaps the next invention may not be as good because they don't understand, for instance, if the let's say that for our purposes, the next great use of this is actually to shake the to sort of shake loose any embedded dirt in, in the skin. Well, this first company had a good understanding of the dental morphology and dental physics and so on. Doesn't mean that they understand skin as well. So if they very tightly reserve the right to building that second invention or if, the, if society or the law gives them a very strong right on that, then that next invention that is really using the full power of the technology will never be created. So in that sense, there is a there is an issue there. Whereas if somebody who knows skin well will understand the limitations of what high frequency vibrations will do to the skin, etc. So they may be able to design essentially a better widget, which will maximize the positive and neutralize the, the negative aspects of this thing. And that's at least one reason why I'm a little bit more sort of agnostic about who is the best inventor here for the second or third invention. And looking internally at a firm, what factors should I be aware of if I were organizing a firm to increase generative appropriability? We identified several features of organizations. Uh, so for instance, first of all, generative appropriability could be enhanced in some respects by more fundamental thinking in a company, right? Because if you come up with a fundamental principle, that principle is likely to have many applications. And some applications would be result in one kind of artifact, others will result in another artifact solving a completely different problem, right? So investments in more fundamental research should likely generate at least the possibility of generative, you know, of generative appropriability. The problem, unfortunately, is that very often companies don't mine their own inventions for uh, doing this, and that's kind of a, a limitation. 
but uh, other types of things that are kind of useful is that a moderate level of organizational resource availability for invention might actually lead to higher generative appropriability. And the logic there is a little counterintuitive. See, if you have a very large R&D budget, anytime you see a problem, money's not a problem. If you have to address a commercial problem, you just throw money at the problem, it goes away. On the other hand, if you have a very small R&D budget relative to others in your industry, you have very little money to invest in solving, you know, technological problems. But somewhere between these two extremes is a possibility that you have a moderate amount of uh, money available, which gives you enough to address a problem, but it's not so much that you can address every problem that you see. So very often, if you have a constraint to how much money you can continue to reinvest in R&D, you may choose to sort of return to the knowledge you've already created and use that more intensely. So sometimes you'll say, you know what, I can't spend $5 million on another R&D project, but is there another way that we can get the insight out of the $5 million that we've already spent? And that may cause revisiting to the principles that underline your inventions and maybe using those principles in a, in a different way. And that would be generative appropriability. I wanted to circle back to patents. And in your paper, you discussed how when you file a patent, it both protects you and also harms you. Yeah, see, here is the thing. A patent is essentially a two-sided contract. The government basically gives you the right to a limited monopoly for a certain period of time. So it gives you exclusivity over some space of the market or technology. In return, the government demands that you make everybody aware, it's called enabling disclosure, that you explain what it is that you do and how your you know, invention works and so on, right? Now notice that filing a patent, therefore, in a sense, creates a conflict between primary and generative appropriability. If you file for a patent, you have to provide enabling disclosure. You have to show how the whole thing works, right? And you have to provide all the details associated with the patent. Those details and how it works actually provide a line of sight into your thinking for your competitors or others interested in that problem, okay? So it actually increases the probability that somebody else will invent the next invention on that idea because that idea is now made public. So therefore, it, it may diminish generative appropriability. However, on the other side, because you have an exclusionary right to that idea, patenting prevents others from using that idea for the specific thing you came up with, right? So it basically, uh, in the case of the electronic toothbrush, it gives you a little bit more insight into the electronic toothbrush but the cost is that if you file a patent for it, somebody else could come up and say, you know what, I could use this idea to shake dirt loose in something else. And you may not be able to control that aspect of it. So there is a fundamental trade-off between primary and generative appropriability. And any time a firm patents, it's basically saying, I want a high level of primary appropriability. Of course, having patented, they may still be interested in trying to maximize their generative appropriability as well. And so are there changes that you would recommend to the patent system to promote generative appropriability? Or do you recommend circumventing the patent system completely? I definitely don't recommend circumventing the patent system. To be able to say that there are changes, see, it turns out that that is a very, very vast and rich uh, sort of area of research, which is what is the right breadth and sort of duration of a patent, right? How big should the patent be granted that to you and how, how long should the patent be valid for? And this breadth and duration is often, sometimes they're called scope and length. The scope and length of the patenting period or the patent is in fact a, a major decision of uh, government policy. It turns out that as things stand, I mean, I can always look at, you know, individual subsectors of the economy where this issue might be a little concerning. So for instance, if some patents are really very foundational, but also very obvious. Now, in principle, there is a non-obviousness criterion, which is supposed to stop, uh, you know, very obvious ideas from being patented. But in practice, sometimes they nevertheless get granted. So very, and such patents, if they're any on a very foundational process, can be of unintendedly high sort of uh, scope or very, very broad. And that could actually limit others from entering in the, into that space. 
And so I would say that a, a more, far more nuanced approach is, is important. The patent system is and always should be a continuous work in progress because technology keeps changing, things we never imagined happen. And we have to keep playing against that and trying to come up with what's the best way to address the problem. So I, I definitely don't think that getting rid of the patent system is necessarily a good thing. I mean, I can think of under some conditions that could make sense for some kinds of inventions and some kinds of sectors. But uh, broadly across, I would be loath to, to dispense of something that has had clearly, uh, I mean, both conceptually and empirically seems to have had a, a very significant effect on uh, improving our material lot in the world. So shifting topics to acquisitions, which is another way that a company can gain access to innovations. In your 2001 paper, Technological Acquisitions and the Innovation Performance of Acquiring Firms, you identified key determinants to a successful tech acquisition. Could you first tell us how you define these acquisitions and then walk us through some of your findings? Sure. The paper was written for uh, largely an academic audience for a research journal, so the so it tends to be a little technical in in the nature of what it, what I what I try to do. But we had uh, used a fairly general definition of uh, technological acquisition. We said an acquisition that was conducted for the primary purpose of enhancing sort of the technology available. So there was technology in the target, so to speak. That technology was measured either if the target actually had patents or if there was a new story which indicated that they were acquired for their technology. So that's what we called technological acquisitions. Acquisitions in which technology was clearly a part of the acquired assets. Notice that doesn't always have to be the case. You could be acquiring a firm for its customers or its market share in a particular sector. And it's quite possible that there is no significant technology involved in it. So not all acquisitions are technological acquisitions. So that paper looked at specifically technological acquisitions. And so or what were some of your findings on what makes a successful acquisition? Yeah. So we found that, see, we conceptualized the acquisition of one firm by another as really a joining of two knowledge bases, right? So let's say firm one knows a certain set of things about the world, whatever technology, technical knowledge it has, right? And imagine those being in the form of little uh, elements of a set, right? So there is a, a bunch of things they know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. For instance, A might be that the boiling point of this material is X. B might be that this material becomes very friable under this kind of pressure and so on. So it knows things like that. So let's imagine that there is a firm which knows these kinds of things and their knowledge set includes everything from a to Z, okay, so they have no 26 things. Another firm actually is doing research on a different set of areas, but and they also know a bunch of things, and some of those things that they know include elements A, B, C, and D as we defined them earlier, so it's, they know that this material is friable for this reason and so on, okay? So if you conceptualize the knowledge bases of firms in this fashion, that they consist of distinct elements of knowledge uh, which are held together in some fashion in, in by the company in, in its research laboratories or in the personnel that it has. Then the second component there is, how does this knowledge base lead to new innovations? And one of the well-known and sort of accepted mechanisms through which innovation occurs is what we call recombination. I pick up element A, and it's been used to address problem one. And I see that element A can actually be used to address problem two, two as well. So this, notice the overlap in this thought process between this paper and the generative appropriability paper, because what I just described was generative appropriability for the element A, that you, piece of knowledge that you came up in element A. So if there is a recombinatory basis for innovation, bringing two different knowledge bases together through a merger, you can make actually some predictions. So the first prediction we made was that the absolute size of the acquired knowledge base might actually enhance your innovation performance because it provides more recombinatory elements. So you knew you had A through Z in your knowledge base, and now you have a new company that has A through D, but it also has a different kind of knowledge, which is one, two, three, four. So now you've got A through D and one through four. And now you can make a new product, which would be G1 or Z2, 
right? Things that are combinations of these two pieces of knowledge together, right? And uh, to make this less abstract, you could argue that A was the idea that this material is uh, very, very strong or resistant. And one is the idea that as a company, you know that in the metal containers business, you need very, very strong metals for particular applications, which are very, very high pressure intensive. And you understand what is the nature of material strength and pressure intensity. Then you can combine this knowledge of this, knowing that this material A does a great job of handling, handling high pressure by using it in the application one, you know, so you combine across those two things. So having a larger number of elements, almost mathematically, uh, suggests that you will have more opportunities for recombination. So the first prediction we made was that the absolute size of the knowledge base of the acquired company would have a positive effect on innovation. Okay? But innovation eventually occurs because the two knowledge bases are merged in some sense, and then there is some absorption of the knowledge from the second company into the first company, and then you have a joint product. But most companies already have very sharp or strong routines on how they function. So when you bring in a new company and you try to merge the two, it leads to a disruption of the routines of the two companies, right? Because to incorporate that knowledge, you need to merge the two knowledge bases. But in merging the two knowledge bases, you're going to create disruption in the routines. So if the second knowledge base is very large relative to the first one, so if their relative size is very close to each other, it means pretty much every routine of the company is going to get affected within the technological space. So our second prediction was that the relative size of the knowledge base, after controlling for absolute size, might actually lead to a negative effect on innovation because that would capture the organizational disruption. And the third prediction we made was that the degree of overlap between the knowledge bases would also be a powerful way of understanding how much innovation got enhanced. So imagine two companies, there is practically no overlap in their knowledge bases at all. One makes chemicals, the other one makes movies. It's kind of difficult to see how one knowledge base could actually ever successfully be integrated with the other one, right? There's no clear way that this advantage is, is going to be, that there is going to be a translation there. Let's say we take another one illustration at the other end of the spectrum. Both companies make chemicals, but they know exactly the same things. So their knowledge bases are identical. Now, again, you have a problem because if knowledge is created through recombination, after you acquired the new company, you actually did not change the recombinatory set at all. You knew A through Z before, you know A through Z now. So there's nothing that you've gained, except you probably disrupted yourself in terms of culture and routines. So you might actually suffer the damage. So the prediction we made was that at moderate levels of overlap between the acquirer and the acquired, technological innovation would be enhanced. You studied innovation using chemical firms for your analysis. Is there something particularly attractive about the industry that lends itself well to this type of study? It was mainly a research design choice. I actually had, don't have any close uh, relationship to the industry. See, for that paper, we to map the knowledge flows or the knowledge bases, we needed a measure of innovation and we needed a measure of the knowledge flows. And we ended up using patents to help us understand what the companies knew because all the patents they had filed earlier and the patents that they had cited in their filings could be reasonably argued to be a sensible proxy of what organization knew, A knew, for instance. Uh, similarly, Organization B's patents and the patents that they cited in those filed patents would be a crude proxy for uh, what Organization B knew. So what we needed was research context or an industry where patents were good measure of innovation, that they were routinely used so that we would not have. See, if, if patents are not routinely used in an industry but only sporadically used, then it's difficult to measure the knowledge base of the companies in that industry through patents because there is no systematic pattern there. We could be picking up all kinds of things. However, if the industry is used to filing patents for every element of new knowledge created, then you have a fairly robust measure. So it was really an attempt at looking for the context in which you could do this study with the highest degree of validity. 
uh, not for any particular interest in, in the chemicals industry. And I think an interesting finding I saw was the lack of impact of different geographies or countries in the impact on innovation. Yeah. So the thing is that the the idea was that we wanted to see whether the chemicals industry companies from different industries were about to, you know, uh, companies from different countries uh, actually differed in their behavior. We looked at the sample of global chemical companies. And in fact, we found there was not, there were not very significant effects. And that has to do again with the nature of the industry. The chemicals industry is a global industry. Once you come up with a chemical uh, or a compound, its properties remain the same whether you're in, you know, Zimbabwe or the United States, right? Which means that an invention you create through a new compound has an, a feature that can be used in pretty much any market. So in that sense, it's not surprising that most companies who were participating in this industry also had global operations because once you've got a chemical molecule and you know something about it and some problem it can fix, you'd like to use it in as many geographies as possible. And we were also using uh, U.S. patent data. So the fact that foreign companies were patenting in the U.S. tells you that they thought that the product would have application here as well. So that's the reason why in this industry, we did not see much of a national effect on in these studies. But uh, obviously, in other industries where localization is more important, and you know, you're not talking about a global feature such as a f- chemical compound whose properties are invariant across anywhere in the world, you would have, have potentially different results. And so shifting to your personal life, to start your career in academia, you left quite an attractive position at Unilever as the regional sales manager for a division in India. What motivated you to switch professions? I was very fortunate with my corporate career. After my MBA program, I was, you know, I was very lucky. I got to work with Unilever, which is uh, actually it was Ponds that I originally joined, which is eventually Chesborough Ponds, which got acquired by Unilever. But both were very, very uh, uh, sort of desirable jobs for MBAs at that time. And I was very lucky that I got a lot of growth opportunities within the company. But I think at some point of time, even though I enjoyed my job on a daily basis, a question kept coming back to me is that, you know, 30 years later in life, uh, if somebody asked you, what what did you do with your life? I don't think I was going to be happy saying I sold soap and I sold it better than the next guy. I have nothing against the selling of soap or doing it well or, and so on, but it just was something was missing in my life. And uh, I originally decided to become a high school teacher because I thought that might be more, you know, to my taste. But I was convinced by my then boss to actually uh, get a PhD and uh, develop my skill set more and then uh, look at an academic role in a university setting rather than a high school setting. And so what have been the most important teachers in your life and how have they impacted your teaching style? From my perspective, the most important teacher I've had is uh, my mother, uh, who essentially, I think for most of us, uh, our parents are the ones that give us all the real lessons we need to learn in life. And the rest of it is, uh, you know, you can pick up as you go along. The second uh, set of teachers that I would think are central to my uh, uh, life are essentially, I was very, very lucky that I uh, went through a a school run by the Irish Christian brothers who were uh, remarkably good in their ability to uh, to foster creativity and provide uh, structure to life as well as to uh, as well as in terms of embedding a set of values so i think those were very important and on an ongoing basis i think my biggest uh, most profound and most influential teachers have undoubtedly been my students because uh, I have a tremendous advantage over everybody else in the world that's not a teacher is that I get to learn from a few hundred brilliant minds every year who give me the benefits of their views and things. All I have to do is be a good curator of those ideas and assembler. And each time, see, basically we, perhaps people don't realize exactly the importance of how students can be teachers and therefore the importance of humility in the learning process because the reality is that the world is way too complex for any single mind to be able to successfully deal with it. The advantage that a teacher has is that, and especially in an applied field like ours, I can ask questions 
and students will provide answers of all kinds. And they come from very, very different perspectives and very, very different states of mind and, and different exposures. And this gives me a variety of thoughts, ideas, perspectives on any issue, on any question. Trying to make sense of that, what I try to do is develop a model of how all of this fits together. And when I finish doing it for one year and I go back and teach the same topic the next year, some student will ask a question that wasn't there the previous time around. And now I have to rework my model to account for this new issue that was raised by this student. And over a period of time, if I am good at just curating this knowledge and understanding it and absorbing it into my underlying structure of thinking, 10 years down the line, I've learned an incredible amount. And so my take is that my uh, most important teachers, uh, apart from my mother and, and the priests of the Irish Christian Brotherhood, have been, I think, the close to 10,000 students I've had. And uh, I thank them for uh, this continuous opportunity for sharing their minds with me, because not only do they make me think about different things and draw my attention to different things, because of their alertness, they keep me on my feet so I can never go back and just relax. Uh, because if I do, they very quickly catch me out. So I thank them in multiple dimensions. And has academic life been everything you imagined it to be? It has been nothing like I imagined it to be. Because I came into academics because I was excited about the prospect of teaching because I thought that that would be a way to learn and it would also be a way to contribute to some in some way to the world. Upon joining a PhD program, I realized that the single most important attribute here is not teaching but research. I knew that there was research involved, but what I thought was research were, turned out to be in the first week that I joined a PhD program, I was kind of informed that no, that's not research. Here are the journals that we talk about when we think about research, because what I knew was of research was practitioner journals. And then I was told, here are the journals you need to read, which are the scholarly journals, and I had never seen them in my life. So I, in a sense, took up this career under uh, what I, I wouldn't say false pretenses, because uh, nobody told me it was you know one thing and it turned out to be another. It was a false assumption. I, I just did not know enough, and uh, I came into this business thinking it was one thing and discovering that it was quite the opposite. It was very, very different. Teaching was there, but it was there was a very big component that I had not understood what it was, and, uh, and it was a very, very different life. So the short answer is it wasn't anything like I thought it would be. The long answer is, or, or the continuation of that answer is, that actually it turned out to be much, much, much more amazing than I had any idea that it would be. So it was kind of, uh, I got very lucky. I don't think there is anything else in the world that I would rather be doing. But there is, I think, a lesson I learned along the way, which I think might be interesting. See, very often people will tell you, find your passion and pursue it, right? That is wonderful if you already have a passion or if you find it. But I find that many of us in the world don't necessarily already know what their passion is, okay? And I learned something very useful or interesting. So when I joined the PhD program, I realized that what I thought was going to be my passion actually was a very small part of the career that I was looking at. And at that point in time, I had two choices. I could either invest more into what was clearly a case of mistaken identity, or I could back off completely and withdraw from the profession and go back to the business world. I would love to say that I stayed on because I loved teaching so much or I loved the thought of teaching or I thought I would learn to like research. The reality is that those were not the reasons I stayed on. I stayed on because I think for most of us, admitting defeat and saying you got it wrong is not so easy. So it was a character flaw in some respects that kept me in the profession because I figured I didn't want to go back and say six months after I left everything and came that, look, I'm back because that wasn't my cup of tea. And so I chose to stay. But interestingly, I discovered something that while if you're very lucky, passion comes from, you know, you discover a passion and you follow it to the ends of the earth. But what I discovered was that when you don't have a choice and you have to do something, but you commit yourself to doing whatever that thing is well, 
it actually gives birth to passion. So as it turned out, by the time I finished the PhD program, not only was I passionate about teaching, I found that I was extremely happy, excited, and passionate about research as well. And that, I think, was a very powerful takeaway for me is that sometimes necessity is not just the mother of invention, it is also the mother of passion. And in my case, that was definitely the, the situation. So the long answer to your sort of question is that, no, academics was not what I thought it would be, but it turned out to be a lot better than any hope I could have had or expectation I could have had. So I am very, very grateful. So on the research angle, you've published a number of papers. And for those of us not in academia, what we see is the end product in a journal. It's a mystery of how the author actually comes up with a research question and developing a published paper. So somebody who started their career as an outsider to the academic world, can you walk our listeners through the research and publishing questions and discuss how you start to define a research question? How you define a research question is likely to differ across fields. So I am in a very applied field. You know, the business school is devoted to application in some respects. And in my field, I, I draw my research questions from a variety of sources, right? So the first is simply looking at the world around me and asking, what are the implications of this, right? So for instance, when I was doing my dissertation, a lot of the world was, you know, alliances was becoming a very big thing. Firms were, instead of doing things themselves or engaging in acquisitions, firms were partnering with other firms. So a natural question to ask was, under what conditions is partnering a good strategy for firms, right? So it was to take, so the, the underlying phenomenon or uh, the underlying approach here was, look at a phenomenon that's important in its magnitude, and then say, under what conditions is it a good thing or a bad thing, right? And therefore attaching, because we know that almost nothing in the, in the physical or the social world is universally good or bad. Almost everything is contingent. There are conditions under which it's good and conditions under which it's bad. And uh, that's been kind of my formula is to ask, what are the conditions under which this or that is is different. So first I looked at alliances, then I looked at acquisitions, then I looked at breakthrough innovations, and more recently I've been looking at how there have been some major changes in the structure of U.S. Uh, financial corporate, uh, U.S. corporations in terms of their finances, and I'm asking, you know, what are the pros and cons of these? So it's always kind of the same thing. Look around at the world and see what are the big trends. So one big trend I see in, in the U.S. is that U.S. corporations have taken on a lot more debt now. It used to be the case that equity was the predominant source of capital for companies, but now we have a lot more debt taken on. So what are the implications of that? Under what conditions is that good or bad? Or when is that good or bad? Similarly, we find that a lot of U.S. corporations are now owned or have a very large ownership stake, which is run by index funds as opposed to active investors. So in more current work, I'm looking at what is the impact of that on the uh, performance of firms and also on the nature of innovations that they generate and so on. So I basically look around at the world and see, is that a big trend? And very often, if people are speaking very highly of the big trend, I normally go and ask a question, under what conditions is this not a good thing? Because that itself adds to our understanding of, of the world in, in a nuanced way. So moving back to your accomplishments in academia, you have won many accolades from both your peers and students, most recently receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Management in the field of technological innovation of management. So on all accounts, your career has been a great success, but you've talked about the fine line between success and failure. Could you expand on that and perhaps provide some advice for listeners as they contemplate decisions within their own careers? See, the basic idea here is, and why I, I use that line, is that very often when we see the life story of somebody that's getting an award, you see something like, oh, wow, they got successful here, they got successful there. So if I look at my own uh, story, you know, I stumbled into this profession and then I wrote a dissertation and that dissertation won three or four major global awards for best dissertation across the field kind of thing. And then uh, 
I wrote papers from that dissertation, and those papers got very heavily cited. And then eventually, uh, you know, with one thing and another, what you see is this award, right, uh, for distinguished scholar or whatever, right? So the one side, if you look at that aspect of it, it looks like uh, what a smooth and easy career. You know, you come in there, you write a dissertation. Most dissertations don't win any awards. So one that wins four is seems like wow. Most people write papers. Most papers are not very heavily cited, but the first few, you know, almost all the papers I wrote got cited. So it seems like a very smooth journey all the way through. Now, what this entire view of the world or view of my journey completely fails to capture is the underlying, you know, reality that uh, is not reflected in, in this journey. So I already mentioned that I found out that I had come into academia with the wrong understanding of what was required. So that itself was a shock. I, anyway, I went and, and did the coursework and I it was academically okay. So I the coursework went fine. But the next stage is the creative part when you have to come up with a dissertation and you have to come up with a research question. And uh, I spent, you know, you start that search for a research question on the day that you join the program. And three and a half years into the program and or close to three and a half years into the program, I had no research question, nothing that I could write a dissertation on. And the first two years, you have at least the alibi that you're working with, you know, you're doing courses, so you don't, if you're doing well there, there are ways to disguise your own lack of progress. So I was doing okay in the courses, so that was at least some satisfaction. I haven't really put my energy into this yet. But in the last year and a half, uh, even that alibi disappeared because now the courses were over. Now you just had to deliver on a researchable question. And I could not do that. I had no, you know, I just kept twisting and turning and twisting and turning. And uh, eventually, uh, the stress led to very serious health consequences for me. It was not clear to me that I would succeed in, in completing this doctoral program. And uh, when my health took a bad you know, term, turn for the bad, uh, I think several of my friends and colleagues were quite concerned. And uh, one of them, purely as an act of charity, said, look, why don't you study this? And he said, alliances. I had an accidental meeting with two other colleagues at, at, an, you know, at a conference. And I said, well, somebody said I should do this. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. Actually, you know, nobody has looked at the performance effects of alliances. And and uh, so these two colleagues were both senior uh, people in the field, and uh, they uh, were very kind, and they, you know, they actually invited me up to their room, one of them, you know, so we went to one of the rooms of one of the people, and then they kind of sketched it out for me. It's like, this is what you would do, and this is what you would do. And that's how I got my research question. You know, people ask me, were you very passionate about alliances, or were you very passionate about innovation? And the short answer is no. I had no idea what to do if they had told me that, Studying blue cheese was a great idea. I would have done that without a second thought. And so I ended up, once they gave me the question and they gave me, well, this is how you could tackle it and why this might be interesting, I then executed, you know, I had all that pent-up energy, which for a year and a half that I, or three and a half years, depending on how you count, uh, that had been sitting inside me. And then I really went all out because I couldn't afford another failure and I think I just tried to cover every base possible. And I think that's what is what led to those awards in some senses is that I was able to combine uh, that novelty that these colleagues and and uh, uh, senior scholars provided. There was Nitin Aurya, was at Harvard Business School and Ranjay Gulati and Kulwant Singh. These were the three people. Kulwant was a colleague of mine. Ranjay is a senior professor at Harvard and Nitin went on to become the dean of Harvard Business School. So he was kind of, uh, you know, they were the ones that kind of put me on this path. And uh, once they gave me the path, then I felt that I had to con contribute something and I wanted to make sure that I didn't fail at the next stage because getting a job out of, you know, in a career, building a career in academia is very difficult. And so I really went out of my way to, you know, literally dot every I and cross every T and think of every possible thing in, under the earth. And I think that helped me to to get to finishing the dissertation uh, but even that doesn't end the story. One would think, okay, see, so he got the dissertation, he won the awards, now it should be smooth. 
So I submitted the paper from this dissertation to the journals and uh, to our top journal in the field or one of the top journals in the field, which is Administrative Science Quarterly. And uh, I got back a revise and resubmit with 40 pages, I think, of single-spaced small pitch font of feedback. And when you read through those 40 pages, even though this paper had won multiple awards, I think the bottom line was pretty clear. It was not a publishable paper and very likely should not even be asked for a revision. However, the editor of the journal uh, decided to take a chance on me. And he uh, basically gave me an opportunity to revise and resubmit the paper. And again, I spent a year and a half fixing every possible thing I could in those 40 pages. And eventually the paper went through because I uh, really, I think I worked for it on it for, I don't know how many hours I didn't, uh, I don't remember taking a vacation. I don't remember uh, visiting uh, my family for a period of almost close to 13, 14 years between the start of my PhD and, and all of this, uh, you know, all the way up till when I became uh, a full professor. Once the paper was published, I got very, very lucky. And it has, I think, whatever, 6,000 plus citations now. But uh, the interesting thing is that this career could have had uh, a very different trajectory. But for the chance meeting with two colleagues at an academy meeting, a very kind uh, colleague in the PhD program who kind of felt his sort of some kind of responsibility, or the reviewers who gave me some incredible feedback, which allowed me to write a paper <clears throat> that was uh, that was able to do something. And, and a lot of that came from the fact that the reviewers gave me some wonderful feedback. But very importantly, the editor who took a chance on me. So if any of these things hadn't happened, the entire sequence is important to this career. And uh, if any of those things hadn't happened, you would never know who I am. And so, and that was the, the context of uh, my line that, you know, the difference between notable success and abject failure is very, very fine. Professor Huja, thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you for being a guest on Present Value. Uh, my complete pleasure and honor. And I hope uh, your uh, listeners will get something of value from this. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Serena Olavia, Alex Vorwald, and Greg Wool from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jonathan Tin. Our engineer was Bert Odom-Reed, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Broadcast Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.